0: The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. starting a mini-series, a three-week mini-series. I have the honor to kick that off today with you. Uh, It's a series that the staff is really, uh, really excited about. I feel like it's really important. It's something that Jesus talked about, and uh, it's something that has personally challenged me even as I've been preparing. So I hope it would challenge you wherever you're at in your journey of faith. Um, So, you know, this journey of faith we talk about, uh, it's something I mention every Sunday when I share what's coming up, and I talk about we're all on our own journey Our own pace, and it looks different for everyone. But something I see kind of happen commonly you know, that journey, uh, it starts in the very beginning before we make any decision about God. It just starts at the beginning of our life and all the exploring we do, and and then at some point we make a decision, and that journey continues on until the end of our life and even into eternity. And so, one of the things I see though is when people come to this pivotal moment when they decide to make a decision of faith or a declaration of faith, and they decide to entrust their life uh, into the hands. Of Jesus and follow him and believe in him, sometimes this decision can be led, um, you know, it's a cognitive decision, a decision of now I've decided what I believe. Or it can be a decision of, you know, I have this awful past and, and he's my savior and he wants to rescue me, and I want to be rescued, so I'm gonna follow him. Um it can be a decision based on a lot of things, and so often in the beginning, we're so excited and moved and delighted to be rescued and saved by Jesus, who really truly is our savior. But one of the things that happens sometimes is over time, I will see those same people kind of get disappointed when they look back and feel like them themselves as a person, they may not really have changed, or their lives don't look as different as they thought they would uh, when meeting their Savior. And I think the reason that that happens is because Jesus never promised to be only our Savior. That's one aspect of who He is, but in the fact that He is our Savior, He is also our Lord. And what that means is, is to be a Lord means to be a master. The one, the thing that drives you, the one that makes decisions for you. The one, any decision you're making in your life, you say, hey master, what would you have me do? Teacher, Lord, what would you have me do? And so so often it's easy to wanna to be saved by him, but to surrender to c- control to him and to let him be the decision maker of our life is challenging. And when we don't do that, we really miss out on the freedom that he has promised. It's a whole package deal that can't happen just in admitting one thing one day. It's a process of making him Lord. And so that's what we're going to talk about this series of who's in charge in the different aspects of our life. Who do we have in charge? And we're going to go through a journey of recognizing that. And I hope you personally will go through a journey of recognizing who's in charge in different parts of your life and and hopefully coming to a point where you can put Jesus in charge, that you can entrust him, entrust your life to him. So I want to look at what he says about this. Uh, Jesus' disciples were following him, and, and if you've read much about his disciples, their decision to follow him was so significant because they literally left their homes, their towns, their jobs, their family, and literally walked with him and followed him and did what he did, ate what he ate, and learned to live by Following him, and so uh, when they did that through time, there was this kind of there 's a few markers of significant things that happened, and one of them is when Jesus washed their feet and I love this because if you know about that time and that culture, to wash someone 's feet was like the lowliest thing you could do. You see, there wasn't, um, you know, the cement that we have outside and people wore sandals and it was dusty and they didn't bathe all the time and it was hot. I mean, their feet were filthy. And so the lowliest servant had the job of washing feet. So the fact that Jesus... The master of them, the one they were following, their rabbi, would wash their feet is amazing. But I'm not even going to go into that. That's a whole message of itself. But I want to look specifically at what he says about this. So this is what happens after he washes their feet. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and right... Uh, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And he's saying two significant things that I want to look at pertaining to this message of him being Lord. And the first thing is he's declaring this about himself. This isn't someone else saying, Jesus is my Lord, although many, many people said that. This is him saying, yes, in fact, I am your Lord. I am your teacher. Some versions say, master. I am that. So that's the first point. And the second significant thing is he says, because I am that, and because this is a master-servant relationship, here's what that means. And he defines that relationship. And he defines it by saying, do what I do. Serve like I serve love like I love. That is how he defines the role of the servant and the master. And so to put him as Lord is to follow in his footsteps. It's not just to take orders like we might think, but it's to look after someone who was perfect and amazing and world-changing and to follow in his footsteps. Now, the thing is, Jesus cannot be Lord of our lives if something else is. This is the problem. Sometimes it's easy to think that um, maybe two things could be there. Two things could be our driving force. Two things could be our priority. Two things could be our masters, but it's not realistic. Jesus in scripture says, Um, That no one can have two masters You'll either hate one and love the other And I don't know if you guys have experienced this I know I have But have you guys had an experience at a job Where maybe you kind of had two bosses Or two people you had to please Maybe you have your direct manager Then you have your boss above that Or you have your office manager And you have the corporation Or you just have multiple leaders And they have different views I worked uh, for a clinic that literally had two equal bosses No one was of higher authority than the other Both bosses, both owners And it was hard because I would do one thing that one told me and the other one would say, why are you doing that? And I would say, well, he told me to. And he would say, well, don't do that. Do what I say. And I would say, okay. And so I would do what he says and the other one would confront me. And I could never win. I felt divided. I felt torn. To please one was to displease the other. It created chaos resentment and just to say I don't work there anymore. So all that to say it doesn't work. You cannot have two masters successfully to to really be devoted to one. If you have two, it does not work. So what does that look like in our lives to have something as Lord other than Jesus? And what is for something to be a Lord or something to master us or for us to be enslaved? It's anything that rules us dictates how we spend our time, our resources, our money, and our energy. I bet you can learn a lot from someone if you look at where they spend their money. You would look at what masters them. You would look at what they care about most. They care about image. You would look, you would be able to learn about them. How people spend their time tells you what they value most. So what you do with your time, your energy, what drives you, the force that makes you make the decisions you do, the thing that you consider, the first thing that pops in your mind before every decision you make, that is evidence of who your master is. We're all slaves slave to something. I have a list of examples of things I could think of that I feel like are common things that we can become entangled in, that we can become slaves to, things that end up being our masters, even though we don't mean them to. I put some things in this list that have mastered me. So uh, as I go through this list, my challenge would be that you would be open to God revealing if one of these things master you or if there's something different. One of the things that can master people is pride or status. You can have a title or a name or be on a pedestal and you put yourself or that title on top and there's no room for Jesus as Lord. Money can be your master. And I don't mean you might be thinking, well, yeah, there's rich people and obviously they're spending money on everything. Money's their master. I mean the poor as well. If money occupies your mind all the time, if you're worried about it, if you never have enough of it, if you're always trying to gain it, if it stresses you out, if it rules you, whether you have too much or too little, it has become your master. Relationships can become your master. When you submit to them and what they want and to appease them over what God wants, they have become your master. Your career, your sexual identity, that can become your master. That can become the thing in which all other decisions are made need to control. That has been a driving force. That has personally been a master of my life. I would do things or not do things all for the sake of controlling a scenario. That is not a case where Jesus has been Lord in my life. Religion can be Lord of your life because you see religion is different than the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus must be elevated, but not a doctrine or religion or earning or attaining works. Hobbies like video games, if that is what drives your schedule and everything you do is around that, that can be your master. And there's no room for that as your master. Now, that doesn't mean these things are bad, but it means if they drive your life, there is no room for Jesus as Lord. Food can be your master. Emotions, resentment, anger, fear, they can be the very things that cause you to do something or the very thing that stops you from doing something you know you should. Then they are your master. The one who is Lord in your life dictates what you do and it begins to define your character and it starts a cycle and it puts you on a path. We're going to look at a lot of passages from Paul. I love Paul. He's one of my favorite people in the Bible because he lived this awful, wretched life, totally against God's mission. And he had this encounter with the person of Jesus, literally an encounter at an intersection in the road. And Jesus transformed him. And he became one of the greatest advocates for the cause of Christ, truly changing the world. He began traveling and starting churches and leading people to the freedom that is found in Jesus. And as he traveled, he began um, going back Back to those churches and teaching them and encouraging them and showing them the way. And so when I read his words, I love it because that is God's message to me. As a person in the church who's confused or discouraged or in the wrong, God is sending his message. And it's through Paul. So we're going to read a lot of what he says to the churches because that message is for us, the church Canyon Ridge. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22 through 23, this is what he says to the church of Rome. He says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a few things happening in this passage. The first thing he's saying is, hey, look, you are free. You're no longer held to be the person you were before. You have been set free. And because you've been set free, there's some things that come with that. One of them, he says, is holiness. You can reap holiness, and partly that's because you're now in the image of Christ, who is holy. But it's not just that. You receive something when you are set free that says you no longer have to be who you used to be. You can make decisions that are holy and good and righteous and life-giving. You have the freedom to do that in a way you didn't before. It also says that through this freedom, we receive salvation, eternity with God. But don't forget the end of this passage that points that it's all through the lordship of Jesus Christ. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not Christ Jesus, the guy who we confessed that he's real. Not Christ Jesus, the historical figure. Not Christ Jesus, the one that we talk about at church. But Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, this is a package deal. You don't just get the beginning. You don't just get the contents. It is a package. We receive the gift of freedom. We have the ability to live a different life. We are set free. We receive eternal life. And it is on the foundation of the fact that we follow him and put him in his rightful place of Lord and teacher and master. And I think that concept is so hard to grasp because who wants to be a slave to something? Who wants a master? But we all are devoted to something. So why not be devoted to the one who is trustworthy, the one who is holy, the one who's not going to lead you somewhere that's harmful or painful? I think the issue is not a question of, can I, can someone be my master? That just seems so wrong. I think the issue is trust. Can I trust him to lead me? And the answer is yes. It's a package deal. If you're thinking when you're hearing this, like I was when I was reading about this, you might be thinking, okay, maybe there is something or someone that has become Lord of my life or Lord in an area or master or in charge. How do I change? How do I make Jesus Lord? Because it's great to hear a concept, but how do we do it? So I want to read read a few things to you in terms of that. In Galatians 2.20, Um, This is what, this is Paul again writing to the church. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he's describing this thing that happens that the old person died. It was crucified with Christ. The old person is gone. And now it's Christ that lives in us. And he's describing this transaction that happens. You know, we're all different places in our faith journey. But when we make a decision to ask Jesus to come be Lord of our life, to save us, and we commit to follow him, a transaction happens. He gives us what's called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And something amazing happens. Now, there can be misconceptions about this. Some think or have the expectation that when you receive that, all temptation of the old life, all temptation of desires will be gone. But in most cases, that's not true. If anything, they can feel flared up because now you're working to be somebody new. That's not the miracle that's done. The removal of temptation is not the miracle. The miracle, the transformation that happens is he gives us a new power and ability and knowledge to turn from those things like we never could before and be the changed person that Jesus has set us free to be. This This is the exchange that happens. He gives us the ability and knowledge to walk a new direction. And it's because we're no longer slaves. We're no longer tied to the old life. We are free to be different and new. Uh, to the church, um, the Colossians, the people of the Colossians. Paul writes this in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. I love this. Um, He says, But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. I want to unpack this a little. The first thing he's saying is kind of the obvious. You lived with this old person. This old person had these harmful practices. Get rid of them. If the old person is gone, don't hold on to the old person's practices. Get rid of the practices and the old person. Let them go. These are harmful, destructive, not life-giving things. It is part of the old self. The next thing he says is he kind of defines the new self. And this is so powerful. He says, we are being renewed in knowledge. And I thought about this and I thought, what does that mean? And I read many translations and I I was trying to wrap my brain around. We are being renewed in knowledge. The way that we think, the way that we make decisions, the process we go through in making those decisions, that our mind is being renewed. And it's not just being renewed by a really wise person. It's not being renewed by a talk show host. It's not being renewed by a really good book. It is being renewed by Jesus in the image of our creator. It is being renewed by the one who thinks and acts and loves perfectly. This is powerful. This is what comes with the freedom that he offers when we make him Lord. And this is what allows us to be that different person. We are being renewed. This is a spiritual transaction, a supernatural transaction that only comes through Jesus Christ. The thing also about Jesus is we have to remember, like I said, the idea master can be so, like everything in me doesn't want to call someone master, you know? I know someone who prays, when he prays to God, he calls him master. And that is an extremely humbling prayer. Um, But we have to remember he's a good master. He is a master that equips us to do what he has asked us to do. He does the things that we can't, the part of our relationship that we can't do. He has washed us clean of our past, and we can't do that for ourselves. He gives us a new power, a new knowledge to make new decisions, and we cannot do that ourselves. But there is one thing he can't do, or maybe I should say one thing he won't do. He will not force himself as Lord of our lives. He will not force us to surrender. He is not a master of force. But if we so choose to surrender and put him in his rightful place, he will lead us. And we will find that freedom that he promises. So that's what our series is about. We have a few more minutes. Uh, For today, I want to focus in on one aspect of our lives that we really need to look at. Is he Lord of that? And we need to make him Lord of that. And that is of our relationships. It's really easy for our relationships to dictate everything we do in that relationship and outside of that relationship. But he wants to be Lord of every aspect. So I want to start by looking at the story of Adam and Eve. I know this is kind of a common story, but I think maybe we'll look at it at a different angle. So Adam and Eve, the beginning of time, no sin, no mistakes, total freedom, total bliss. They walk and talk with God, no questions of who he is or is he real. He's right there. They have everything that they need, all their needs met, no stress, no worry. And God tells them everything in the garden is yours. There's one thing that you must not touch or eat of or you'll surely die. And that is the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he warns them of that. What happens in the story, though, is that Satan comes in the form of a serpent to tempt them to challenge who their master is, to challenge that. Because up to this point, God has been their master. He says, did God really say you would die? Did he really say that? I don't think you'll die. He starts to challenge that. He says, God just knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is the crucial moment in the story for Eve. Because up until this moment, God was her master. And this moment, she decided to believe the serpent. And this is the moment where the serpent, where Satan was elevated. Her own desires were elevated. Her own curiosity was elevated. Her own agenda was elevated And sometimes we don't try to purposely remove God as Lord, but if we elevate something above him, he's not Lord anymore in that moment in our lives. And that is what he did, and this is what the Bible says about it. In Genesis 3, 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So the first problem, of course, is that neither of them were obedient and neither of them trusted that what God said was best and true. So they took him out of the place of lordship. Eve put her own desire ahead. And Adam, I don't know if it was his desire to please Eve. That could be very true. I don't know if it was his desire that he didn't want to be left out, that she might have something that he didn't have. But this whole dynamic, because she did it, he decided to do it, and they both made this decision, and both of them Um, Removed god as their master And after they ate from the tree it gave them this knowledge and I don't think of this as like a good knowledge Like oh, they're smarter It took away an innocence that existed before and they became aware that they were naked and for the first time They felt shame even more than that. I think they felt like they were lacking They felt without like they were missing something when truly they had been fulfilled with god as their master the whole time So when they heard God coming in the garden, they were ashamed, so they hid. And this is what God says. He says to them, did you eat from the tree like I told you not to? I imagine a mom or dad—I'm not a mom or dad, but well, obviously not a dad. Um, I'm not a parent. Um, but I imagine saying that to my child, Did you just do what I told you not to? I just told you not to touch that. Did you just honestly touch that? I imagine this scenario. And I imagine their response is very similar to what your kids do. This is what they say. Genesis three twelve through 13. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to woman— Well, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. Then I ate it. So I look at this, and the second problem is here is no one took responsibility. He's like, yo, man, why did you do this? And he's like, she told me to. And he's like, yo, woman, why'd you do this? He's like, he told me to. You see, no one takes responsibility. And I kind of even get the feeling, I don't know if you get this, I kind of get the feeling that Adam was also kind of blaming God. Because if you'll notice in the previous passage, they're referred to as husband and wife. That is the dialogue. And in this, he doesn't say my wife. He says, God, the woman you put here, her, that one, she, she made me do it. And it's like, A second ago, she was your wife. Now she's the woman God put here. You know, see, I'm kind of thinking he was blaming God and he was blaming Eve and Eve was blaming the serpent and no one was admitting that they put their desires above. This is a problem. Now, here are some things they could have done. Let's look at what could have happened. Fortunately, it didn't. But let's look at that. One of the options, Adam could have warned Eve. He could have said, hey, Eve, this is not what our master said. Bad idea. Let's go. Uh, he could have reminded her of the truth. He could have said but this is what god said and we know god tells the truth and Honestly, who can trust the serpent? I mean, there's some there's some leverage he could have used there He could have they could have not listened to the serpent at all as soon as the serpent came Telling things that were different than their master They could have said i'm not even going to give him the time of day and i'm going to leave because I trust my master Or the other option if eve still gave in to eating adam did not have to follow her He's not like a total victim here, okay? He did not have follow her. He could have still made the right decision and not allowed their relationship to become his master. So looking at this story, the question is, what does this look like today? What are some common—that's not really the exact scenario we're in these days. What does it look like today? What are some examples of where our relationships— are not in proper place where they become our Lord instead of Jesus becoming our Lord. So here's a few I came up with. Once again, I can relate to some of these. Here's one that's happened in my life. Having someone uh, with an addiction in my life, enabling them, not setting boundaries. Doing that they become the lord and even their addiction becomes every it fuels everything I do and don't do everything I say and won't say Before you know it you're running to rescue them out of every situation They've got themselves in and it dictates your entire life That relationship becomes lord for you It became lord for me lashing out on others in revenge. So someone in a relationship hurts you, and instead of taking the high road, instead of doing the right thing that Jesus would do, we seek revenge. We want to repay evil for evil. That is an area where he's not Lord in that moment. How about this? Sleeping with someone you're not married to, to keep that relationship, to appease them so that you don't lose them. That thing becomes the idol. It becomes Uh, what you live for. It drives your decisions even though you know it's wrong. That is the Lord of that relationship. Being a victim and not getting help when you need it, like Adam and Eve, saying he did it, she did it, his fault, her fault. Never taking ownership. That is not an example of Jesus being Lord. Manipulating, controlling others. Or here's my favorite because I did it this weekend uh, when I was writing... Well, in the process of writing this, holding grudges or resentment, I was uh, there was a situation this weekend where uh, someone did something that made me mad and more mad than normal. I just, oh, I just felt so like I just deserved an apology and I just felt so wronged and how could someone think that of me and I misunderstood and I was just mad and and I explained my anger, I'm sure in lots of words and it didn't get an apology, it didn't get anything, which only made it worse and I just. Instead of letting go or pursuing reconciliation or examining what I could have done wrong in the situation, I just got even more angry, and I just closed down, and I decided to take a nap because that helps me. Actually, I don't know if that's helped. Don't take that advice. Anyway, I took a nap, and then that's probably more of an escape thing. Anyway, I woke up and I was like, well, I need to continue to work on my message. And so I come across the scripture where God says that we need to forgive others as he's forgiven us. And we need to not grow tired and weary of loving people because he has loved us. And I was so convicted because I was like, I can't even get on the stage tomorrow if I do not do, if I do not deal with this. Because in that moment, it was so clear that my own anger and my own resentment and pride and wanting to even control became Lord. And I was not letting Jesus be in his proper place in that relationship. And so I had to pray, and I had to start the reconciliation process, and I probably have more work to go in that process. And the thing about God is he's not so disappointed in me, like you're the worst hypocrite in the world. You can't speak anymore. You can't be on staff anymore. He's Guiding me and he's proud of me and he's walking me through like a patient dad that knows that I have a lot to learn But I've put him back at master in that relationship So I want to give you four practical steps if you're like me if you're realizing Okay, there's a relationship. He's not ma- He's not the master of right now Here's four things you can do to correct that uh, These are scriptural and these are a little bit of what I did and uh, the first one you can write this down is to surrender control Because we can't change until we admit that uh, we shouldn't be the one in control. The second thing is to invite Jesus back to his proper place. Admit, remove ourselves, and put him back in his proper place. The third step is to start following him above our own desires. And that's the practical step. That's where you actually—I couldn't, in that scenario, just admit in my mind— I've made a mistake. I'm resentful. I had to take action. That's where you start to apologize. You start the process of reconciliation. Start following him, what he says, what he would do above what I want to do. Step four is when we make this mistake again, because we will, admit them and surrender again. Repeat the steps because we will. We will. There are moments where we take back control. We take back lordship of our life and we're not doomed. It's a process of surrender and returning Jesus to his proper place. So I'm, I'm tell, one of the steps there, I said, you know, begin doing the right thing. But for some of us in our faith journey, especially if we're, we're new in our faith journey, the question is, how do we know what the right thing to do is? It's really easy to say, do the right thing. But a lot of people have done some pretty awful things and have thought it's the right thing. So we have to know what the right thing is. And only God, our master, our Lord, the example of Jesus will tell us. So here's a few things you can do to help gauge what the right thing is as you start this process. One of the best things to know, to do, to know what the right thing is, is get to know your master. Get to know the one you're following. Talk to him every day. Ask him, it doesn't have to be formal. Master, Lord, Jesus, Dad, however you want to talk to him, what can I do for you today? Put yourself in the real, true role of servant to master, servant to Lord, trusting that he has something good prepared for you. Ask him, how do I love this person that's difficult? What do I do? Give me the strength. Give me the courage. Give me the words. So get to know the master. That's one way you can learn and evaluate what the right thing is. And remember, he's renewing your knowledge in the image of God. The second thing you can do is get accountability from a godly person or a godly resource. A person is better, but resources are good also. That could mean talking to a pastor, someone you trust, joining a community group where you have a support of believers around you who can walk with you and pray with you. Read god's word read books on topics you struggle with that are biblically based Join a recovery group if you're struggling with addiction or a group for codependency If someone in your life is struggling with addiction I have done that personally and it has been powerful and transformational the way god has used it Don't be afraid to reach out and get help in those areas because god is faithful to show up We're going to wrap up here. I want to um Kind of end with a scripture that Paul, uh, he wrote this in a letter to the Galatians, and I kind of think maybe they were struggling similar to the way I am or to the way you are, and this is what he said to them to encourage them. Galatians 6, 9 through 10, it says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And I think he says this because he knows we're going to grow tired. He knows we're going to grow weary. He knows it's going to be hard, but he's reminding us that something great is waiting. He's reminding us, I've given you power and knowledge and ability to do this. And there is a blessing and a harvest waiting if you do not grow weary and do not give up. It's a promise that Paul said to them, and it's a promise to us. You see, making Jesus Lord is challenging. I'm not going to say it's easy. It's much easier initially to be the Lord of our own lives, but it's very hard when we look at the messes we get ourselves in. But truly, making Jesus Lord is difficult initially, but it will be more worth it than anything else you've ever done because you can trust him because he always does the right thing. He's always just. He created you. He knew you before you were born. He's always loved you, and he's always been pursuing you. So he is faithful, and it's worth it. He can do something that no one else can do. So the challenge today is to look at that area, to examine your relationships. Is there an area where he is not Lord that he should be? And to begin a process of surrender and trust to him, and let him prove how trustworthy he is. Let him prove that to you because he's faithful.